It's the People's Show on a Thursday. Dan Richo and Josh Elliott Wolf. We've got Victor and Eddie with us producing this fine program as well. Lots to come over the next three hours of the program. Harmon Dial is going to join us after 3.30. Well, my times are all mixed up. Uh, 3.30, it's going to be uh, Harmon Dial. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, you nailed it the first time. After 4 o'clock, it's going to be John Molinaro. And after uh, 5.30, we'll have Adnan Burke. Got to get some movie talk in today. It's a big movie weekend. When was the last time you had a interest in going to the movies uh well i'm a i mean i am a movie guy i'm a big marvel okay guy. wait 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 something other than marvel okay 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 well we've we've had this discussion a ton on canuck central yeah when was the last time you were excited for a movie that wasn't spider-man yeah <laughs> or the um, avengers it's been a while honestly i can't recall the last time i even went to a movie that wasn't one of those. And even that, I'm like, I, I'm starting to kind of come back on because, like, if you're a Marvel fan, you know that the quality has been going down a little bit lately. Yeah. So, shocker. Yeah. Who would, hey, for, for a while. Just there. an oversaturated market. Hey. How many hey. times have they done the Spider Man movie? They did it so many times in different ways that they have now done it in a cartoon form. The cartoon ones are the best ones. <laughs> Beyond or uh, across the Spider Verse, I saw that the other oh other day, or I guess a couple weeks ago now. Sounds it was wonderful. Sounds great. It the was Spider Verse great. is like one of my favorite verses, for sure. There's actually something that's caught my interest that I want to do for movies. Metallica apparently is streaming some of their concerts through local movie theaters for people that can't attend. Like, say they're doing a concert in Texas, they're yep. streaming the concert here in Vancouver. I'd love to see what that experience would be like. Hmm. Like a music concert at a movie theater for something that you can't attend physically. I feel like it'd be kind of awkward, you know, because you'd be in a quiet room, though yeah. the music would be loud. Yeah, and a big video screen. Yeah. The sound system, yeah. other people there, you know, going nuts for... Something different. Metallica! Darn right. Yeah. I, um, I am going to Oppenheimer this weekend, though. So are you doing the double? I'm not doing the double. Well, okay, so I have a my nephew's one year old birthday party to go to. Okay, pre to the Oppenheimer, nephew. and then ten o'clock, put on my dark clothes and I go to Oppenheimer. Oh wow, Oppenheimer in is, seventy millimeter IMAX. Is anybody doing the double here? The Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer. Victor, not doing the Barbenheimer. I I take it by Eddie's reluctance to even get anywhere close to the mic that he's not doing the Barbenheimer. Nope. What would you do first? <laughs> Barbie or Oppenheimer? I don't know. I guess Oppenheimer and then hope that Barbie picks me up a little bit. I do Oppenheimer because I do have an interest in war movies. Right. But I feel like Barbie, or at least from the few tweets that I've seen about it, is like just a, uh, it's an attack on today's social values, which probably makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. That's way too much movie talk. Adnan Burke is going to come up after uh, 5.30. We'll uh, get into it with him. I... Uh, I didn't watch a ton of the Open this morning. Just uh, some of the highlights. I actually golfed myself this morning. It was a good day. You had a wonderful day. 91. <sighs> 91, good for me these days. Um, so I'm pretty happy about that. It was a good day. Good morning. Um, but what's live right now is the Barracuda Championship. I am enthralled <laughs> by the Barracuda Championship. I've realized I don't know who the golfer is unless I know their first name. I'm pretty sure the guy that's on right now is wearing a Kirkland signature golf <laughs> or a glove. <laughs> like, 
They don't have sponsors. The Barracuda Championship. This is that weird one where they give you points for getting a birdie or an eagle or, you know, anything good. You get points and you accumulate points instead of, you know, a total score for the week, which is, I mean, may as well throw the people for a loop while they're mostly watching the Open and not the Barracuda Championship. There's like no spectators on the course. No. They're still holding up the qui- the quiet <laughs> signs, though, and there's, like, one guy watching. He's yeah. like, I, w- I haven't said anything the whole day. This is just absolutely wild. So, um, yeah. The leader is at 17. I don't know how the point system works either. Some guy named Hostler. Yeah. Never heard of him. Like, is it? Is this I- Sam Bennett? 18-year-old Sam Bennett. I know him. See? Sam. There's it's- also a, a Wierenski out there. Yeah. So, hockey, well-represented. <laughs> These are all the guys that weren't good enough to go to the Open is essentially what is happening here at this uh, Barracuda Championship. Um, It's on here in the studio. That's why it's top of mind. But uh, that's more than you need to know about the Barracuda Championship. There is uh, one bit of breaking local news, actually, as I'm just seeing come through the Twitterverse. And maybe we'll have to uh, reach out to Axel Schuster and see if he'll – give us an update on what exactly is happening. But uh, Tom Bogert, who covers Major League Soccer, says that the Columbus crew are finalizing a deal to acquire star wingback Julian Gressel from the Vancouver Whitecaps. Sources telling The Athletic, Gressel 29 preferred to be back on the East Coast. Vancouver worked to find a solution, but could not. And so Gressel is traded away from the Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, tough one for the Whitecaps. Was one of their better players, obviously, and uh, a team that is hoping to go to the playoffs. Uh, we'll uh, talk a little bit more soccer later. Tee up for Canada's game against Nigeria tonight in the Women's World Cup. But that is the breaking news on the Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, again, a tough one to lose one of their star players, although Gold is uh, a magician right now, and he can carry the Whitecaps, to the playoffs on his own, it feels like. All right, so we're going to have Harmon Dial coming up after 3.30, and he recently wrote at The Athletic Pathways or gave his ideas on exactly what needs to happen for the Vancouver Canucks to end up in a playoff position. All the things that need to go right for the Vancouver Canucks in order to get into a playoff position. Now, we may be higher on the Canucks than some others around the league. I saw today Sportsnet's summer NHL power rankings had the Canucks at 26. And um, the only teams below the Canucks are basically the teams that are rebuilding. Ah, well. Arizona, Montreal, Anaheim, Chicago, Philadelphia. Probably not a great list. Probably not. And like, (laughs) is the power ranking, I guess I I probably should have looked at the reasoning behind it, but it's hard to power rank yeah. the off season as well. It is a little bit hard to do that. The reasoning on this from Rory Boylan, if nothing else, things figure to be at least a little quieter in Vancouver this year. Rick Tockett gets a full season to see what he can do, and Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes will be great. What else are you banking on after that? And this is obviously the big question for the Vancouver Canucks. What happens beyond Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes? You feel pretty good about Thatcher Demko being all right in between the pipes, especially back from injury. Philip Hronik, as much as I'd like to buy all in on Hronik as a player, 
there's still some question marks there, right? Coming off the injury and if he's going to be able to handle toughs because it's not something he necessarily had to do with Detroit last year or the last couple of years with Maurice Sider's emergence. JT Miller, can he repeat what he was doing towards the end of the season with Rick Tockett and play the center position well? Can Andre Kuzmenko repeat his season and get close to 40 goals again? When you look through the Canucks roster, generally it provides more questions than it does answers, Josh. Yeah, and the, the heroic part is is interesting as well just because we, we saw him play four games with the Canucks and that's it. So we just don't really know how he's going to fit into the team either, especially because like I know people haven't been super uh, into the idea of having him on the top pair with Quinn Hughes, but what if that's something that the coaching staff wants to try out, right? So um, I do wonder how he's going to fit. It's with JT Miller. Yeah. We it's, it feels like a lot of people keep expecting him to either build on what he's doing and like prove people that believe in him, right. Or people are expecting him to, to fall off this cliff at some point. And I just feel like we almost have to just expect to see what we've seen from Miller year in, year out until he completely proves us wrong one way or the other. And it's the same for me to a lesser extent with Brock Besser as well, where people go into every season with these expectations for him. And I just feel like I'm kind of past the point of projecting (laughs) something for Besser. It's just like, this is is what you are now. And until you show something different, this is what I'm going to expect. I uh, I might be falling into the Besser trap again, but we'll uh, we'll dive in more on that coming up a little bit later. As for okay, let's let's start with what needs to happen. Right, there's a lot of things that need to happen for this Canucks team to get into the postseason. You look at the Western Conference; you probably have, and in the Pacific Division specifically, you've got Vegas, Edmonton. And the LA Kings, who are, I don't know, pretty much guaranteed to be back in the playoff picture? I would put them there. Like, the the question is the goaltending, right? But for me, their goaltending's already they overcame. Bad. Yeah, they yeah. overcame their goaltending last year anyway. And now they're probably a better team outside of goaltending. So, LA is, I would say, mostly a pretty... I'm pretty confident LA goes back to the playoffs. I'll say that. The Seattle Kraken maybe less confident that they're able to repeat, but I still wonder if they've got something in their back pocket that they might be doing to try and upgrade their roster before we get to training camps in September. They've got to figure out what the number's going to be for Vince Dunn, and then after that, maybe they make some additions beyond that. So there's four teams in the Pacific Division quite clearly the Canucks are trying to catch up on. Then you look over at the Central, It's maybe a little bit more murky, but three teams are automatically making it out of there. You have Colorado, maybe Winnipeg in that conversation. Minnesota always seems to find a way into the postseason. Dallas is definitely going to make it. Dallas is definitely there, and St. Louis is going to be in the conversation too as well. So Canucks are in that wildcard conversation. And what needs to happen, they obviously need their big three. Elias Patterson, Quinn Hughes, and Thatcher Demko to be difference makers for them. One of the things that absolutely needs to happen, and I mean this on a, a bunch of different fronts, they have to be better defensively. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you could just use that as a blanket statement. The Canucks have to be better defensively. They were awful defensively last year. They got a lot better when Rick Tockett came in. And everything they've done this offseason is about goal prevention. Has nothing to do with adding goals to this team. Ian Cole ain't going to bring you a ton of goals. Carson Soucy might bag a few. Teddy Bluger, you can't count on him for really more than 10. So all you're looking at is how those three additions, those three major additions to this roster, are going to help you on the goal prevention side. So can the Canucks get closer to being middle of the pack as a defensive team, middle of the pack on the penalty kill, and then all of a sudden you can start to craft the Canucks path to the playoffs. But they're not getting there unless they're better defensively this year. I also just don't know if three guys are going to be the difference defensively. You know what I mean? Like, you bring those three three guys well, in Well, Hironic is also the big Fair. other addition there. Fair. But to, to your point earlier is we have to see if he can actually be that defensive guy yep. in tough minutes with the Vancouver Canucks. And we've yet, we've yet to see that, and that's not to any fault of his own. But I just think we're also going to have to see step up from other players as well. Whether yep. it be – like, Tyler Myers is someone I expect to – play a bit better this year in a limited role mm-hmm. and so maybe his minutes you're seeing a bit of an improvement in Hughes I think needs to take another step as well like I have no issues with his defensive game but if you're going to be playing a crazy amount of minutes I think you do need to continue to grow defensively and then up front like I, I know we talk about it when it comes to guys like JT Miller and and some other forwards but I think you need a shutdown line to emerge if you're the Canucks. Whether it be Teddy Bluger's line, maybe it's Niels Oman and company on the fourth line. Yeah. But you need a line like that that you know you can put out in the tough defense minutes and that you're going to have some level of success with. You want to be able to not have to throw out JT Miller for every defensive zone faceoff. Especially because, look, I, I'm... I know a lot of us here are higher on JT Miller than the consensus. Yes. But I'm still of the mind that like you're putting him out defensively and he's going to be okay, but he's he's not going to going to excel defensively. The Canucks last year. So at 5 on 5, there were six teams that gave up more goals than the Vancouver Canucks at 5 on 5. Montreal Buffalo, Chicago, San Jose, Anaheim, Columbus. The team, the closest team that the Canucks were to in the Pacific Division was the Calgary Flames. And the Flames only gave up 169 goals against at 5-on-5. Nearly 30 goals fewer than Vancouver at 5-on-5. So there's a lot of growth that needs to happen there. Nowhere to go but up, though. Nowhere to go but up. That's a win. The other part of it, too, is hopefully you have a healthy Thatcher Demko. Yes. And if he can bounce back, I know Harmon mentioned this in his piece as well. If if, if Harmon can bounce back, if Demko can bounce back, that's going to go a long way, especially five-on-five as well. Is there an area for you that the Canucks need to excel in in order to increase their odds of getting to the postseason? I almost think they have to be – I know they've been good on the power play, but I think they need to be elite on the power play. Right. Because if you're going to – like, I think we can go into this season expecting a bit of a 
defensive some some progress on the defensive side yeah maybe not to a crazy extent but I think you have to go out and you have to be even better on the power play to offset what's been happening defensively and I wonder like like the first unit's going to be relatively similar but there's one big yeah, spot the, on, the, the, on the first spot. unit yeah. you're going to have to figure that out and if you can figure it out that's going to go a long way so I think we all know who the favorite is to fill that spot. It's probably Brock Besser. What does the first unit look like? Quinn Hughes, Andre Kuzmenko, Elias Pettersson, JT Miller. That fifth spot is a bit of the wild card. Now, there's a couple of different ways the Canucks can go with it. We saw them try Philip Peronik on the top power play unit. Not a big fan. How many teams in the league are running out two defensemen on their top power play unit these days? Yeah. And the big sell for him is his shot. Yes. And I don't know if they really have a guy. Like Besser, if he if he does have a crazy bounce back here, yeah. he has that shot. But Hironic right now is probably their best shot from the point. Yeah. it's And even that, the point shot, do you really need it a ton on your top unit? I no. mean, the units are like Quinn Hughes has been an incredible power play quarterback. And... JT Miller works well on that left half wall as well. So to me, it's not so much about needing a big shot. It's how are you going to create a big, like what are you changing that is now affected by Bo Horvat's absence on this top unit, right? Because through the end of the year, that's one thing that they never really figured out is who is going to play in the bumper spot. And I think it's Brock Besser's spot to lose. If you want to think about breakout players for the Vancouver Canucks, I know Josh is done thinking done, about man. Brock Besser finally having that year that everybody hopes he's going to have. He's going to have a 55-point year. There's a, pay, a piece from Ben Kuzma in the province that uh, outlines some of his you know, off-season training and the changes that Brock has made in order to set himself up better for the rigors of the season and get himself ready based on what Rick Tockett and him have talked about at the end of the year. So there is a real concerted effort here from Brock to increase his conditioning and increase in some of those little areas because he stopped doing the little things well these last couple of years that have been very frustrating for a player that was really smart and really good in a lot of different areas on the ice rather than just goal scoring. But the goals haven't been there for Brock, especially last year. It was... A struggle for him. And what I do see is Brock being that best fit in the bumper spot with the right shot. It's going to change some things for the Canucks, but what it does is when teams are loading up, if it works properly, mm-hmm. what it could do is if teams are shading towards Patterson to stop the one-timer, guess what? There's probably a seam that's going to open up for Brock Besser in the middle. And since he's a right shot, it would be a lot easier for him to do that rather than Bo, who was a left shot. So they would have to work the puck around over to the other side rather than allowing teams to just shade over to Pedersen on the power play. Mm -hmm. My worry with Besser, if he, if he was in the bumper spot is that you might not prioritize Pedersen's shot as much. And maybe maybe it helps because you have another guy that can feed Pedersen. But how too. often does Pedersen get the one-timer off anyways? I mean, 
not like not it's as there, often as it's a should. threat, but yeah. But realistically, like he should be doing it more, right? Yeah. Um, the other name I was going to throw for a potential bumper spot is don't say Connor Garland, not Connor Garland. Okay. I was going to say Andre Kuzmenko because to me personally, I think Besser also a right shot. Yeah, I think Besser is a better fit as net front. Like when we've seen him be net front front he's he's yep. improved at that and i feel like one thing that we haven't seen the full potential on yet has been andre kuzmenko's playmaking ability right and so i do wonder that if he's in the bumper spot if he's a guy that can create a bit more and maybe be a bit more dynamic from that spot than someone like besser could be uh leaf hater steve i'm expecting a big bounce back from brock i'm going on record he'll have a 75 point season and JT will be back with a 90-point season plus a Gordie Howe hat-trick somewhere there. Um, this text, let's hope they're better on penalty kill and defense in general. That would be nice. That would be uh, that would be nice. Uh, this text, Heronic is so good. LOL, you guys are nuts. I just – my main thing is just to outline for you – some of the question marks that are out there. If you've been listening to Canuck Central, I've said it a thousand times. I'm pretty high on what Philip Rona can do for this roster, especially after seeing a couple of the things, a couple of the games that he played in. But if you're looking for where it could go wrong and trying to figure out all angles of the situation, the reality is Philip Peronik's breakout with Detroit this past year or year and a half, whatever you want to call it, coincided with Moritz Sider taking a real top pair role in Detroit and Heronic no longer having to take all of the toughs in Detroit and excelling being more in a second pair role. The good news is he's going to technically be in a second pair role with the Canucks, but Quinn Hughes isn't going to want the Canucks aren't going to want to give Quinn Hughes all of the toughs. Yeah. So that's going to land on Philip Peronic and probably Ian Cole as his partner. Yeah, and it's it'll be interesting to see the difference between because to your point, he he excelled offensively in Detroit. I think defensively he was he was more than fine as well. But we need to see that tra- not only transfer over to Vancouver, but then he also has to get better because he's going to be playing more tough minutes and he's going to be relied on way more when it comes to defensive. Like you're going out for the big minutes. You're going out first on the penalty kill. Most likely like you're that guy. Yep. And he, he needs to step up and completely not only accept that role, but then he has to excel in it as well. Because if not, like it's something that could like this trade and I, I'm a firm believer in Heronic as well. But if he doesn't reach the expectation that Canucks management and coaching staff has for him, then that's something that could really blow up in their face. Uh, keep those texts coming in, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We'll get to your responses over the course of the program. But what needs to go right for the Canucks to make it to the postseason next year? You can get in. With your comments, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Also coming up, Harmon Dial from The Athletic. His take on this and more around the Vancouver Canucks. That's next on Sportsnet 650.
People's show continues. Stan Richo and Josh Elliott Wolf here today. Bick Nazar, you heard him uh, during the commercial break on location at uh, Pacific Center. Go say Up- hi. Yeah, go say hi. Updating uh, us on uh, the great new deal with Rogers as Ignite uh, comes into the BC market. And uh, I, I mean, he made the uh, the comment that uh, the speed is as fast as my four nine forty. So it's pretty quick. Nothing is as fast as your four nine forty. I mean, there's a few things, but I mean, if it's moving that quick, then you're getting pretty good speed on your internet. Then is it as fast as your Spro speed? <laughs> is it as fast as a uh, Jordan Addison? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Wow. Jordan Addison, uh, that's something. I do want to like talk about that because like going a one forty and a fifty five. I mean, where are you going that you need to get like that? You need that kind of speed. It's just uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, be better, Jordan Addison. Uh, all right, let's bring in our next guest. Uh, it is Harmon Dial from the Athletic. Thanks for this, Harm. How are you? I'm doing well, guys. How are you? Uh, we're doing well. Thanks for uh, thanks for making the time for us. Uh, your latest at the Athletic uh, talks about. The pathways, the things that need to happen for the Vancouver Canucks to make the postseason. And um, here's the thing. It's it's kind of a long list for the Canucks. They need some things to break right. And uh, that's the play that management has made this year. It's the obvious thing about this roster is just how much they're going to lean on Elias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, and Thatcher Demko. Like, first things first, they need their stars to be their stars. Absolutely. And especially when it comes to uh, those guys, it, it isn't just the performance of, let's say, Thatcher Demko bouncing back, because I think we can all look at the talents that, let's say, a Demko has, that a Pedersen has, that a Hughes has, and, and have confidence in their ability. It's also them staying healthy, right? Which in the case of, um, of Dem- Demko, obviously missed a significant chunk uh, last, um, last season. And then the year before in 2021-22, Near the end of the year, he uh, he got hurt again and didn't miss time because of it. But it's just something that uh, you need to keep in the back of your mind in terms of durability and making sure that you manage his workload uh, appropriately so that he does stay fresh, so, so that he does continue operating at a peak level. And then, of course, uh, the other thing to remember with Pedersen and Hughes is that they've reached a level now when you look at their performances last season where they weren't just elite players. They were arguably top five players at their respective positions. Pedersen, 102 points, finished seventh, I believe, in Selkie voting. Like, that's the top five center in the NHL last season. Uh, you look at Quinn Hughes, may, he may not have necessarily finished as, uh, as high as, as he should have in, in, let's say, as a Norris Trophy finalist. Uh, but he was right there in terms of, in my opinion, being a top five defenseman last season. So it's maintaining that sort of superstar level from, from those guys, because you're right. When you look at the other parts of this roster, yeah, there are, there are pieces that you really like, but uh, ultimately this, this is a, this, this still is a top heavy group. And for instance, one thing that that comes to mind is for as much as we talk about the Canucks in the last couple of seasons, they have high end offensive talent. And we look at them as having a lot of offensive weapons. It's worth remembering that the Canucks only finished 20th in five and five, goals for last season, which means that essentially any time Pedersen and Hughes were not on the ice, the Canucks 
were a pretty anemic offensive team, which, of course, when you combine it with some of the defensive flaws that they have, especially on uh, on the penalty kill, it um, it goes to show you that you, didn't, you do need multiple things to go right for this team to uh, get back to the playoffs. So when it comes to finding that additional five-on-five scoring depth, where do you do you see that coming from somewhere on the roster? Because the additions they made this offseason aren't really uh, ones that focus on the offensive side. Yeah, it's going to have to come internally, right? Uh, it's in, I think, of course, when it comes to, let's say, the wingers and getting more out of your bottom six, which is going to be important because the centers that they have now in Teddy Bluger and Nils Oman, presumably your 3C and 4C, those guys are, are solid defensively, but they're not going to score a lot. So that means, to me, you want to see one or both of Nils Hoaglander and Vasily Podkolzin break out and hopefully adding some sort of offensive spark to the bottom six. Uh, maybe it means a full season of can you construct a top six where you can then try and use a player like Connor Garland, like Rick Talkie did in the second half, sort of driving your, let's say, third line. And, and Garland, of course, being one of the Canucks' most efficient 5-on-5 five five producers. I really think that extra secondary scoring, particularly at 5-on-5, five five, is going to have to come from the wings. The other important player that I look at, uh, is J.C. Miller, because it's interesting when you just look at the raw point totals last season, they're really impressive, but you break down where the production came. He was elite scoring on the power play. Uh, he created a ton, actually, um, shorthanded as well, but 5-5, five five, he was scoring closer to the level of a middle six uh, player when you look at his point production. Uh, and even when you look at his his lines overall, 5-5 five five goals for eight, uh, it was um, it was below average, and this is obviously a guy that just a year prior at five and five had been producing at a significantly higher clip. And of course, there's crucial context that comes to that too, right? Because last season you were asking Miller to match up against the opposition's best um, best players, and so now all of a sudden it's not just we need you to match up against um, McDavid and Drysaddle when Edmonton's in town and stop them defensively. But, oh, yeah, we also want you to create even strikes as well. Like, that's not an easy task. And that's where, where again, when it comes to getting more help from your wingers, Brock Besser, it'd be a huge help if, uh, if, if Besser and Miller end up playing together uh, to help drive that line, if, if Besser is able to score a lot more. Because what's interesting is when you look back at Miller's defensive struggles in let's say the first half of the season I wonder I wonder if that line could have been steadier defensively um, or I should rephrase it as saying the brunt of the blame went to Miller but I feel like Besser's defensive uh, flaws in terms of his wall work um, some of his turnovers I think they fell under the radar just because it wasn't um, as uh, as noticeable and so it's like even if a guy like Brock takes the next step offensively and in sort of rounding out his two-way form um, that could help out a line mate like JT and now all of a sudden you're you know you're looking at a second line that's a lot sturdier from a two-way perspective and can chip in with more secondary offense as well so I think those are the cogs that I'm I'd be looking for uh, to improve the team's overall five and five form yeah I'm really curious um, what like it's so hard to to know what to expect out of Brock Besser the points, you know, he finishes one point shy of his career high last year with 55. We know the goals, you'd like to see more goals from Brock. There's been 
already it seems like a thousand reports of of his offseason conditioning and how he's changing some things and really putting a focus on that after some of the words that uh, you know he had with management and, and coaching, uh, especially Rick Tockett, some of the impact that he's had there. So it's I'm fascinated to see what happens with Brock as we get to to training camp, but. I think he's, you know, now that he, we know he's essentially going to be here for the start of next season, I think he's a real integral part of what the Canucks offense looks like next year, Harm. Absolutely. Not just bouncing back offensively, which people will be hoping for higher point totals, but again, for me, it's the defensive side of the game yeah. because you look at the you look at the 5-5 five five numbers, the Canucks allowed uh, just north of four goals uh, against per hour per 60 minutes that Besser was on the ice at five on five. So they were getting absolutely torched, which meant that despite the fact that he was, let's say scoring some five on five points and, and his line as a whole was creating even certain chances. It was more than more than erased by how much he sort of struggled defensively. Again, when it comes to losing a lot of battles along the walls, uh, when it comes to, I thought he looked a lot less effective on the forecheck. And, and the reason I bring this up is because Besser has shown toward the end of, let's say, Travis Green's time in Vancouver, that's when Besser's two-way game had legitimately taken uh, a huge step in a positive direction where you'd look at some of the, the microstats that, that, uh, that were out there and you're seeing that he's winning a ton of um, puck battles when – he played on the lotto line with Miller and Pedersen in 1920 when that line was one of the best first lines in the NHL. Besser played a crucial part on the forecheck and uh, is coming in as the second or third forward uh, to take away the right passing lanes, to break up plays and, and help quietly um, that line control more, more of the play in the offensive zone. And so you combine those things, you combine, you know, the puck management, uh, and in and his defensive assignments and, and those are just areas where we've seen so much better from Brock in in previous seasons and so that's where I think you're hoping that you can see um, better form there because again I think quietly that could make an even bigger even strength difference for whatever line that he that he's on compared to just the goal scoring I, and I think when we kind of project the lines for next season. He seems like a guy that's going to slot in next to JT Miller like they ended the year. Uh, and they had Phil DiGiuseppe there as well on the left side. Is there someone you would like to see playing with those two that can maybe take that line to the next level? Or do you think Phil DiGiuseppe is that guy for those two? I'd love to see what Mikheyev looks like in training camp. If he uh, has, uh, has gotten back up to speed in terms of uh, his explosiveness because – when you look at Miller and, and Besser and, and what that line could sort of use, I think right off the bat, right off the bat, if you could add McCabe's speed and how quickly he closes on guys, um, McCabe's defensive impact, just the overall responsibility of how he wins battles, the mature and polished details of his game, I think McCabe could could do a lot of the the dirty work for uh, for that line, and especially if you're presumably going to use Miller and that line against the opposition's best players, then you're, you're going to want fast players on that line that can shut down the opposition because that's an area where when Miller, Besser, and Pearson, I believe it was, went up against top lines in, uh, in the beginning of the season in October when the Canucks had that disastrous first 
Wotrip and Miller was on the ice for the first eight goals goals against for the team. It just felt like that line was too slow to be defending against top guys, and that's where I think where I think McKay's skill set could be really valuable. Now, of course, the uh, the thing to sort of keep in mind with that would be, of course, okay. Well, McKay was also a great fit with Patterson and Kuzmenko on the top line, but ultimately, if Pedersen and Kuzmenko are cooking offensively the way they are. They don't need another high-end driver on their line. They just need a, a complimentary guy that uh, that won't burn them. I, I wouldn't even hesitate to throw a guy like Bovillier in that spot, and I don't think that first line would be any less dangerous. And I think um, then that Miller line could benefit from uh, McKayev's two-way chops and speed. Harmon Dial, our guest here on uh, on Canuck Central. Um, that was exactly what I was going to ask you as a follow-up to that. Uh, if because I had Mikheyev penciled in to be with Kuzmenko and Patterson, um, if if it's not him, then who? Yeah, for me, I thought Bovillier showed well enough down the stretch that he right. can fit there. He um, there are two keys that sort of stood out for me with him. Number one is that when when you're playing on a line with Patterson and Kuzmenko those guys are going to draw so much of the opposition's attention that you as a third piece, the third cog on that line, you're going to end up with a ton of time and space and Patterson is going to find you in the slot. So number one, you just can't flub your scoring chances. That, that's the biggest one, right? I, I think that's a problem that, for example, when Nils Hoaglander at times, whether it was last season or even the year before, when he, when he get a bit of rope on that Patterson line here and there, he just didn't have the finishing, right? It's uh, it, it, he's a great example of what you don't, of what wasn't working um, with Pedersen before, or, or if you want an even older example, um, classic Nikolai Goldobin. It's like, sure, he'd end up with a ton of scoring chances, but it's like, you got to bury them. And I think with Bovillier, we saw down the stretch that, okay, he can hunker down on his chances. And secondly, he's quick enough that he can forecheck and add that level of being able to close on uh, the opposition's defenseman quickly which uh, I believe is a skill set that Rick Talk is going to be looking for with that top line is not just creating a lot of pretty plays off the rush, uh, but also being able to manufacture chances by forcing turnovers and um, creating havoc that way. So I think Bovillier is, uh, you know, he'd still be a solid fit there if you've got Mikheyev on uh, on the second line. So... uh... There's a, a huge part of this conversation that we've yet to get to, and that's Philip Hironik. Um, you know, what we saw, it was very small sample, obviously, was pretty positive. Um, do you have one reason for optimism and maybe one reason for pessimism on Philip Hironik? Yeah, I think with Hironik, the positive is simply that last year was a phenomenal breakout campaign for him, right? I think early in his career, he'd been – a player that was probably overexposed, right? The Red Wings for so long were this rebuilding uh, bad team, and Hronik was kind of thrown to the wolves, playing a ton of minutes, uh, top pair role, playing against the opposition's best players. And you could see the offensive tools in his game, but defensively he really seemed to struggle, and uh, he profiled more as a defender that might be a, a 4-5 on, uh, on a good team now with Moritz Satter obviously emerging on the right side over the last couple of seasons, it's all, it'll, it had sort of allowed Hronik to step back into more of a, a second pair role. And with that, he broke out in terms of his all around impact, shoring up his defensive game. And what we saw from him last season was a player who 
has has the skill set to be number two, three defenseman. Now, in terms of pessimism or, or something to just be mindful of going into next season, there it's not that there's one glaring red flag, but there are just a few a few small things that uh, that still linger in the back of your mind uh, that might la- linger in the back of your mind. For start for starters, there's of course the fact that what Peronik did last season at 25, he's never done that before in terms of the solidity of his defensive game. So the question you ask yourself is, was last year the type of breakout performance that he could replicate or was last year an outlier? Now, I I tend to think that it was more of a breakout than it was an outlier. Um, But there's a chance that, I mean, Detroit traded him for a reason. They probably thought it was an outlier, right? So that's something to keep, keep in mind. Uh, the second thing to keep in mind would be, okay, if you end up in a scenario where, let's say, Hughes and uh, Hironic are playing separately, uh, then that means if, let's say, Hironic's dri- being asked to drive a second pair and, let's say, Hironic ends up on a pair with Carson Soucy, well, that pair could excel. But the one thing to also keep in mind is that Hironic was most successful in Detroit when he had a partner with whom he shared a roughly even balance of the puck moving load in uh, when you look at his time with Ole Mata. Because Hironic watching the tape of him last year he was a jack of all trades, a really great all around defenseman, but he wasn't necessarily like a dynamic. Um, I'm going to skate the puck out by myself and I'm a one man breakout machine type defender. And when you look at Carson Susie, he brings a lot to the table, but the biggest limitation with Susie is that he really, really struggles on defensive zone retrievals and at moving the puck. So if Susie and Hronik end up together, the one thing I'd worry about is, would you be putting too much of the transition burden on Hironic? Because when Hironic, let's say, played with Ben Sherratt, that's an example of the transition burden was too heavily tilted on Hironic, and Hironic's two-way numbers plummeted compared to when he had been playing with Mata. Uh, so I think those those would be the two main things that stick out in terms of, I guess, little things to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, at the end of the day, we know Hironic's a good defenseman, but just because of how thin this blue line is after Quinn Hughes, you need you need Hironic to be not just a good defenseman, but a great one uh, for the Canucks to make the playoffs next season. And because of that, because of how thin they are, he's going to have to take a lot of the tough minutes as well. Like most of the the defensive playing against the other team's top line minutes. Are you confident in his ability to do that? Like, it, does it depend on who he's paired with for that to be completely successful? Yeah, that's a really point, and it sort of. Uh, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about because the last year or two, Quinn Hughes hasn't necessarily played, hasn't been matched up in against the opposition's best uh, players, right? That's a role that had gone to the ekman Larson pair, sort of free up Hughes a little bit. I think, of course, if Hironic ended up in a role with Quinn Hughes, like that pair is going to, that pair is going to crush it. And that obviously would be the pair that you use against the opposition's best players. But if you want to spread out the uh, spread out the talent in the top four and and deploy Hughes and Hronik separately, which is probably the smarter ploy, uh, then you run into a question of uh, of can Hronik drive that own pair against the opposition opposition's best players? Because again, his breakout last season coincided with okay, hey, hey we're not going to ask you to defend against Connor McDavid and Leon Drysaddle and Edmonton in town anymore, or Nathan McKinnon or Austin Matthews. You just play against second and third lines mostly, and we're going to use Sider and, and our, our top pair to handle the toughest minutes. Uh, and from that perspective, if Hironic is deployed away from Hughes, then I think if you're the Kansas coaching staff, you 
you, you give those minutes to, to Quinn Hughes in that top pair, uh, just because uh, it'd be, look, if the Canucks were in a situation where they had a high-end left-shot defenseman to pair with Ronick, then I'd be like, okay, uh, I, I have no sort of, big concerns about deploying Hronik in a second pair against the opposition's best players. But if uh, if he's in that role with, let's say, Carson Soucy or Ernie Cole, uh, I'd prefer that uh, Hughes just take the brunt of those matchups because we know that he's uh, an elite number one defenseman. Harm, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for this. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is Harmon Dial of The Athletic joining us here on The People Show at Stan Richo. And Josh Elliott Wolf here in the Kintech studio. Hronik is uh, is a fascinating part of the conversation because there's just there's a lot of unknowns there, Josh. Yeah, and I feel like a lot relies on him going into next season too. Like if he hits, that could be the difference between them not being a playoff team or being a playoff team. Yeah. But if he doesn't hit, then you're like, hey, we just gave up this package for a guy. What do we resign him for? What's that contract going to look like? And I almost wonder if you look at, and I, I know Harm brought up Carson Soucy as a guy that might end up being paired with Hironic just when we see all the all the pairing shake out. But I almost wonder if if you want him to be the defensive-minded guy that you kind of need him to be, I wonder if you almost have to play him with Ian Cole yeah. just to go completely hard on, hey, we're shutting guys down with this pair. Hope it works out. Yeah. And and then maybe you got to play Susie on the top pair with with Hughes. Just my feeling on it. Um, I'd be really against giving Carson Susie those minutes. Yeah, I just don't like. Okay, asking um, Ian Cole to go up against the other team's oppos- top opposition in big toughs is not something he hasn't been able to do earlier in his career. He did it just last year with the Tampa Bay Lightning in a pairing with Eric Chernak. So we know that he can do that. With Carson Soucy, most of his career has been pretty much being a sheltered third-pair defenseman. So you're asking a lot to put Soucy in those types of minutes rather than be, this is uh, almost disrespectful, but the sidekick to Quinn Hughes. Yeah, and the issue is, like, you there's just no easy way to look at the these pairs and be like okay that's exactly how it's going to go and it's going to work out great i just i wonder if they're them bringing Susie in maybe they know something we don't and they're taking a bet on him and they know that he's a guy that can maybe compliment Quinn Hughes and that that's the other thing as well is because you don't know enough about Hronik yet yeah you know that Hughes can he's done it pretty much his whole career aside from when he was playing with Chris Tanev he can carry a guy and make them seem better than they probably actually are. And maybe he can do that with Susie. And then again, that Cole Hironic pairing, you just say, hey, you're you're playing all the tough minutes. And maybe that helps shelter Susie a little bit as well. Uh, this text comes in. I've said it before. Uh, this is on uh, your boy, Jordan Addison. Well... Let's not go, let's not go with the your boy thing. Just, just yet. you're a Vikings fan, and yes. he is a member of the Minnesota Vikings. Yes, that's fair. Um, so you have you have a lot of boys in that sense. Yeah, I got over fifty of them. <laughs> this text comes in. I've said it before. If you are caught speeding, doing double the posted limit, it's an automatic thousand dollar fine plus. Every kilometer an hour above that is a hundred dollars. So if you're caught going one forty in a fifty. 
it's an instant $5,000 ticket. So this is Jordan Addison was caught doing 140 and a 55 miles per hour as well. Miles per hour. So he's on a highway somewhere in the US and Minnesota, I would assume. What's what's that in uh, kilometers an hour? It is 225. So he is like flying through the highway. Very <laughs> reckless and dangerous, by the way. And uh, like this is the thing about it. Okay? There is nowhere you need to be that badly. No. Absolutely nowhere you need to be that badly that you are going 225 kilometers an hour on a public road. <laughs> Even if you're like you want to go that fast, hit a racetrack. Yeah. Okay? There's no reason for you to be going this quickly. Become an F1 driver. Yes. yes. Yeah. I I don't know. Yeah, he's it's just like complete and utter on it, it's just stupidity, really. Yeah. And, yeah, like, are you really going to get where you're going that much faster? Do you like, just, you're do you're you just need, risking the yeah. Do you need the everything. adrenaline rush that badly of weaving in and out of cars oh, at 225 man. kilometers? Actually, you get, you get met at the next red light with one of those cars that you passed. <laughs> yeah, I had this experience last night coming home from Chilliwack. Okay. So I was driving on the highway, two lanes between Abbotsford and Langley. And I was going, I was in the left lane. I was passing people. I wasn't going crazy fast. I was not going 225 kilometers. Well, good. Uh, And these cars come up behind me and I see that people are getting into the right lane to let them pass. And they are just flashing their high beams at people and they're- Were they racing or something? Yeah. Yeah. But that was in Abbotsford. (laughs) I caught up to these guys in Surrey when I got off the exit. Yes. So it's like, what if you're- I get that it's you're going for the adrenaline here, yeah. but you're not getting anywhere faster than I am. No, you're really not getting anywhere that much quicker than anybody else. That's the fallacy about driving so fast and super aggressive is especially on like regular streets. You're really not getting anywhere that much faster. Like, great speed into a red light. That's going to yeah. do your brakes good. Traffic is still a thing, guys. Uh, it's Dan Richo, Josh Elliott Wolf. It's the People's Show on Sportsnet 650.